0: Why don't we uh, take a moment to pray, and then we'll dig into our passage tonight. Father, thank you for uh, what you're doing in the lives of students at Hillcrest and what you're doing here in New York City uh, through even uh, a small new church like Epiphany and through uh, the larger churches in the city like Redeemer and, and others. Thank you for the ministries that are going on all throughout this place that are seeking to reach people from every background from all over the world with the good news that you're reconciled to us. The God of this world isn't mad, but in fact offers terms of peace. So God, with that in mind, help us now to hear from your word so that we might receive it and apply it and uh, and, uh, and grow from it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So actually tonight, uh, we're going to be looking at this short little passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 57. And we've been going through a series... uh, brief series just for the summer on the attributes of God. What that means is essentially his characteristics. Who is God? What do we know about him? Uh, what, what does he reveal about himself? And uh, so this passage tells us a little something about what we might say are, is his transcendence and his imminence. I'll read actually just verses 15 through 19 for our purposes here tonight. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him, I hid my face, and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace, to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. End of reading. If you look back over your life, have you ever had somebody that you, that you deeply feared? And maybe fear is not the best word. Um, that's a word that's in the Bible a lot, but I don't think we hear it the same way that the Bible uses it. How about revered, somebody that you've deeply revered? When I was growing up, there was no one that I revered or feared, respected more than my grandfather. He was my hero. In my mind, he towered above me. He had a loud voice. And when he'd share stories uh, from his past, his face would get sort of snarled, depending on how angering the story was to him. You could kind of tell by how much his nose wrinkled. He had a quick temper. And it wasn't uncommon to hear Grandpa, if his order was wrong at a restaurant, to get upset and make sure that the waiter or waitress knew that he was not happy about it. If there was one thing I knew when I got around Grandpa, it was that I did not want to get on his bad side. And yet I did at times because I was a kid and you do things wrong sometimes. And yet, here's what I want to tell you about my grandfather too. There were few people that I've ever loved more in my life than my grandfather. He was extremely affirming of me, always telling me how proud of me he was. He would would brag to everyone about the smallest things and pretend like they were the biggest deal in the world. We'd talk about how great his family was, and he wasn't afraid in public to often, this strong, tough man that was intimidating to so many. To so many around him, he would, uh, even as I was becoming an adult, no problem, give me a hug and a kiss in public. He would insist on it. No worries at all. I remember one summer when I was 13, I was about to go into eighth grade, I stayed. I went on a road trip with my grandparents around the Midwest for the summer. And we stayed in their 35-foot Terry trailer in places I never knew existed at the time. Being a kid from Southern California, the L.A. area, I hadn't been out of there very much we went to places like wisconsin and in minnesota small town minnesota and yellowstone national park and deadwood south dakota where apparently things were really messed up at one time and the sights were great but what i remember most about that trip more than anything else more than the elk or the moose or the bear that we saw in yellowstone more than the interesting sites at the deadwood casinos the thing i cherish the most was bedtime And the reason why is because in that trailer, in the back bedroom, there were two beds. Every night, my grandfather and I slept next to each other. I slept on this bed, he slept on this bed. And in between was this little, you know, nightstand and a jar of peanut M&M's. And we'd sit there, chomping on peanut M&M's, and just talking. I don't remember really much about what we talked about. I remember asking him a lot about World War II because he was in World War II and I thought that was just so astonishing. I, I didn't have a category for that. I always wanted to hear stories. Or he would, I, remember, I do remember he would always talk about how beautiful my grandmother was the first time they went out on a date. I mean, man, I never, he never got tired of talking about her. Always talking about her. So my grandfather, this towering figure, loved me and came near to me. And similar to the way that my grandfather appeared to me growing up, towering yet loving, God comes to us in the same way. He towers over us, obviously, in every conceivable way, and yet he is so close to us that there is literally nowhere that he's not Present. So, what this text in Isaiah helps us do is flesh that out a little. First of all, we clearly see that God indeed is transcendent. And what does that word mean? Well, the word just literally means it not limited. He's unlimited, or to put it another way, he is he's high above it all. God says, verse fifteen. If you want to use your bulletin to kind of follow along, I'm just going to take us through the passage briefly here. He says that he is the one high and lifted up. Now, this does not mean that God is saying that he literally is like just heights above us, that he's on top of the Empire State Building we're way down here or something like that. Uh, he is using language that can relate to us humans. He's using creature language or, fancy word, anthropomorphisms. He's not higher than us in the sense of elevation, but he is, he is saying that he is king of all of the universe. So if you go to Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, you hear him say things like, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Does that literally mean that God's foot is you know, on the earth? No, but it's, just, it's a way of saying, this is how grand I am. Isaiah 40, again, the prophet is confronting the Israelites for their rampant idolatry, a problem that happens all throughout the Old Testament. And he does this by contrasting the usefulness of the idol to the power of God, saying, do you not know, do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Again, he is high and mighty, transcendent. The New Testament, the Apostle Paul states it this way, at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6, Jesus Christ is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Isaiah goes on, he inhabits eternity, is not bound by time. His name is holy, Isaiah says. What does that mean? It means that He is set apart from us. He's not like you and I. He's different. He's pure. We're not. He dwells in the high and holy place, Isaiah says. God is all these things and He never ceases being these things. What's the value of that for you? That He's so high and above it all. Well, I suppose, I mean, in the day-to-day grime and dirt of life here, uh, where we struggle and where people struggle against us and where people, you know, accuse us of wrong and we try to defend ourselves and all sorts of other things that go on in any given day, any of the struggles, there is a sense of comfort knowing that no matter what happens to us, the God who reigns above us reigns above those who trouble us too. I mean, imagine this could be quite comforting, say, for somebody that's put into the gulag during uh, Kim Jong-un's reign in North Korea. May that end soon. But imagine being put in the gulag and being stuck in there, and your life being filled to the brim with living on the edge of starvation day after day after day. You might just find some comfort in the idea that God one day, because He's above this all, can, can redeem this for you. Maybe, maybe, that might bring a sense of comfort. On the other hand, it might bring a sense of terror, right? Or frustration. I mean, we cry out in prayer, we hear no response, we seek his guidance. Where is he leading? It doesn't seem that he's made it very clear. Everything in the universe just seems to happen. It seems to be random. It doesn't seem to really have any rhyme or reason to it. Earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes all happen in this sort of uniform way. At least that's what we think now. Didn't always, but we're pretty sure that's the way it is. And we can predict some of these things with a particularly high degree of accuracy. So certainly, does God even need to be there? Incidentally, it was, that, it was a strong focus on this attribute of God, his transcendence, the fact that he's so high and holy and mighty that actually led to the deism of many of our founding fathers, the idea that God was so high and holy that he wouldn't get involved in the affairs of everyday ordinary humans. He didn't have to. He just set it all up and let the thing wind down. Or we may feel... That God is so holy that there's no possible way we can come to him. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you're, I mean, like when you really think about it, you go, okay, I'm praying for God to give me a job, or I'm praying for God to heal my dog. Right? I mean, prayer is that. We're told we're instructed we can pray about anything. Have you ever felt like this is too much of an insignificant prayer for the Holy One, for God? He doesn't want to waste his time hearing this. It's not true. But you might be prone to thinking it if God is so high and mighty and lofty. But the good news here is that God is not merely just transcendent. Because Isaiah goes on to say that God is also imminent, He's not just far and high above, but He's near. He's really, really near. I mean, from the the looks of it, the very first verse here, at least the beginning of it, you know, I dwell in the high and holy place. We might be prone to thinking the next words are, and I will crush you like a worm. But instead, Isaiah says, God dwells also with him as who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Interesting little sign though. There's no one between. you notice that? God's high and holy or he's low but the one place he isn't is somewhere in the middle high and holy or with those who are poor in spirit as jesus says and as a matter of fact speaking of jesus the reason that god can proclaim himself to be with the lowly and the contrite and those who frankly Don't measure up too high and holy and are far too aware of their lowliness is because of Jesus. In Mark 2, it's a wonderful little passage. You know, the the, the religious people of the day are getting pretty stinking frustrated with Jesus because he keeps on, instead of hanging out with the really devout, holy-looking people that wear the religious hats and all that stuff, He's not hanging out with them. Instead, he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and welcoming prostitutes to follow him. He's, he's with, I mean, the lowly. And they're, they're complaining about it. They don't like it. They don't think that a Messiah should be acting like that. That's not our version of Messiah, of Savior. Don't hang out with the losers. No, hang out with the winners. Hang out with the people that have the prestige and the influence and the power. And Jesus says this, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That is in Christ, God shows himself to be incredibly close to people that do not have it together at all. So Isaiah says he revives the soul. When he comes to the lowly and the contrite, to the person that knows that they don't measure up, he revives the soul. I think a great picture of this can be found in Ephesians 2. It says there, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. Who's doing the verbs? He makes the lowly and dead alive. Verse 16 of Isaiah's passage says he, he ceases his anger. Ephesians 2.3 says that we were by nature children of wrath, but because of what Jesus has done, that's all done for now. He's not angry. As a matter of fact, his compassion overwhelms him. And so he no longer hides his face from us, verse 17 of Isaiah's passage says. Now what does that mean? When God hides his face in the Old Testament, it's a sign usually for blessing departing. So if God says, I'm I'm hiding my face from you, it's like I'm saying, I'm not going to bless you anymore. I'm not going to give you good gifts. But here... Interestingly enough, Isaiah says, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry, I struck him, I hid my face, and I was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. And yet, verse 18, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. Do you see that? I did turn my face away, but I'm I'm still going to heal. I'm going to go to that lowly person. Reminds me of the words of Romans 5 that talks about what Jesus did. It says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were still powerless, Christ came for us to rescue us and to save us. And look at verse 18. It declares because of his healing of us that he is going to lead us. In John 10, as Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd, what does he tell us of his sheep? The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. How does he do that? Verse 19 of Isaiah 57. He creates the fruit of our lips. What does that mean? Well, it's another way of saying he causes us to praise him. Who's doing the verbs again? He's the actor who creates the praise that will come to us. You see, God's grace to the sinner, to the lowly, to the contrite, is so deep that He's the one that even grants repentance. He's the one who creates faith in us. He's the one that causes the praises to come from our lips, though naturally they would not come at all. God's grace draws Him near to us in forgiveness in mercy and care and love. So that he can declare, as Isaiah does here, peace. Peace to the far and to the near. The word here for peace in Hebrew is shalom. You may have heard that before. And the meaning of shalom could be stated completeness. The holistic type of peace. Peace. Through Jesus Christ, we are not merely given inner peace, although that is certainly a part of it. It goes deeper. Isaiah is saying God, by coming near to the sinner, gives us completion, fulfills us, satisfies us. Ephesians says he himself is our peace, who has made those who are warring into one. Since I have been a pastor, uh, I just celebrated 11 years in pastoral ministry, actually, two weeks ago. Yeah, two weeks ago, July 1st it was my first day as a pastor in 2007. And I can still remember, it was uh, it was actually my first week in pastoral ministry. I participated in my first wedding, like I actually, I, I, like I, I counseled the couple, they were just finishing out and they, it was an incredible scenario. There was a woman in our congregation who we knew only had days to live. I just started as a pastor. I didn't know anything about funerals or anything like this, but this woman was clearly on her way to death. She wasn't eating anymore, and her, uh, she had all sorts of problems. She could barely speak anymore, but the one request that her daughter had was that before her mom died that she could get married in front of her. So I remember first week as a pastor going into this house and with they wheeled this, this lady out to lay behind her daughter and her soon-to-be husband so that I could officiate their wedding vows. I remember her smiling. I remember seeing her. She knew what was going on. She was incredibly joyous that she got to be there for this. And I remember being there with her just a few days later when she finally did go home. And one thing stuck out to me, and it's been the same the multiple, multiple times that I've had the experience of sitting at the deathbed of someone. The family often doesn't have any eloquent words at that moment. For that matter, the pastor doesn't either. No one does. But here's what the family does almost every time. This is what the family did with her too. They came and sat next to her. They rubbed her hands, or would rub her back softly, and they would say this over and over again. Mom, I'm here. I'm here, Mom. It's been repeated over and over and over again in my ministry. Dad, Dad, I want you to know I'm here with touch. Oftentimes when we're struggling, we want an explanation. Because we think if we get a reasonable explanation for the struggle, that that will satisfy us. But do you know what actually does the most for us when we're struggling? Even when we're coming to the point where life is ending? To know that we're not alone. To know that someone is there saying, I'm here. What this passage says to us from Isaiah is though God has the right to wipe us out from his high and holy hill. I mean, this passage is addressed to a bunch of people that have ran away from God and cursed God and, I mean, betrayed him a thousand times over. If you look at the passage in its whole context, it's all about that. Though God has every right to be done with them, instead, God comes near and says, Peace. I'm here. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. You can leave me and I'll let you, but I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. A while back, one of these TV preachers that says dumb things often I won't name his name because what's the why. I'm not going on the attack against anybody. But you know what happens from time to time. Preacher says something dumb. And one of them said that he gave the advice to somebody that since their spouse had Alzheimer's disease, that their spouse was now considered the walking dead and they should just leave. That was the advice to him. And my favorite response to that was from a guy named Russell Moore. I want to read to you just a little bit of what he said. He said, sadly, many of our neighbors assume that when they hear the parade of cartoon characters we allow to speak for us, that they are hearing the gospel. They assume that when they see the giggling evangelist on the television screen, that they see Jesus. They assume that when they see the stadium political rallies to, quote, take back America for Christ, that they see Jesus. But Moore says, Jesus isn't there. Jesus tells us he's present in the weak, the vulnerable, the useless, the lowly, the contrite, he is there in the least of these. And somewhere out there right now, A man is wiping the drool from an 85-year-old woman who flinches because she thinks he's a stranger. No television cameras are around. No politicians are seeking a meeting with them. But that is where Jesus is found. So yes, God is holy. And he dwells in high and holy places. The good news for us tonight is that he dwells with us in the dregs. He dwells with us lowly people and declares to us that one day he'll lift us up to where he is. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that it's not in the impressive big things that most often you're found. Sure, you can be there. Lord, I mean, you've given us the Bible, and the Bible does have those stories of you appearing in thunder and lightning and at the top of mountains and in things that are, frankly, terrifying to our natural senses. But, most often, it's in the lowly, it's with the contrite, it's with those who know they need a Savior. Father, that is what we gather to confess again tonight. As we think about you coming near to us, we're about to head to the table And at that table, what is it but you coming near the very body and blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all our lowly sins? Father, may we take it with grateful and worshipful hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name.